You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hey, everybody, if you're liking our show, we want to know more about you. Uh, so we want you to take a little bit of a survey. But please, please do this because this is one of the only things that is really helpful for us and for you because we want to give you the best ads possible. So what you're going to do is you're going to go to podsurvey.com backslash unspooled. You're going to take a quick anonymous survey, and that survey will enter you to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Ooh, nice. What could you buy with it? So many things. So go to podsurvey.com slash unspooled, U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D, and fill it out. Let us know what you like so we can better serve you and give you some great discounts on some amazing products. Thank you for your help. It's 1939. Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets, then teams up with three strangers to kill again. The movie, The Wizard of Oz. Everybody, I am Paul Shear, and I am Amy Nicholson, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. This is the show where we go through the AFI's top 100 films of all time list, the 2007 edition. And last week we watched Ben Hur, and I think a lot of people were not happy with that assignment. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people were intimidated, rightly so, by the length and. Slumberated? I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> Slumberated by the fact that nothing happens except there's lepers. Yeah. And a, and a chariot race. But what's great is we've now done the number one movie on the list. We did Citizen Kane. Yes. We've done the number 100 movie on the list, which was Ben-Hur. Now and we can just go into the middle, man. Let's just plunge in. I love it. We're moving up to number 10, The Wizard of Oz. And before we started this off, because we knew everyone was so familiar with The Wizard of Oz, we asked you to recast it. If we were to make Wizard of Oz today, who would be in it? And... Uh, here are some of your responses. Hi, this is Alexi from Georgia. I think Dave Bautista should be the Tin Man, and then Aubrey Plaza, or maybe Elizabeth Olsen, could be Dorothy. Lady Gaga as Glenda 
Anne Hathaway is Dorothy. For the Lions, either John Goodman or Ron Funches, Gina Rodriguez as Dorothy, Tom Hanks as a Scarecrow, George Takei as a Tin Man, and Terry Crews as a Cowardly Lion. And for the Scarecrow, John Mulaney, you know, gangly body, hilarious. But also, I think he has a depth that hasn't really come out yet. Dorothy, Michael Sarah, Tin Man, Janelle Monet, maybe a little on the nose. Scarecrow, Tiffany Haddish, Lion, Melissa McCarthy. What do you think? Uh, John C. Riley as the Lion and Joe Pesci as the Wizard. Perfect casting. Uh, I love the show. Thanks. Oh, my God. Those were amazing. You know what kind of hit me out of left field? Uh, the Joe Pesci as the wizard. It seems like perfect casting. A little bit of an aged Joe Pesci up there working all those controls. Well, what I just loved about that is I reused all the Wizard of Oz in my head 20 different ways. Oh. And it just opened up. It was multitudes upon multitudes. I mean, I'm a Dave Bautista girl. I yeah. think he's amazing. I and agree. Terry Crews. Why hasn't anyone made a Dave Bautista, Terry Crews movie? That's a buddy cop movie I want to see. Come on. Oh, my God. Can you imagine them fist pumping? It'd be amazing. Dude. We're reposting a lot of your Wizard of Oz recastings on our Twitter page, which is at Unspooled. Uh, but here is one. Uh, this is from our friend uh, Steph Chemisky, I'm going to mispronounce every name on the show, and she does an all-female version of Wizard of Oz. Uh, Amy Adams as Dorothy, Anna Kendrick as the Scarecrow, Kate McKinnon as the Tin Man, Melissa McCarthy as the Lion, Tilda Swinton as Oz, and the Wicked Witch, Helena Bonham Carter. <gasps> and through the magic of CGI, all the monkeys are played by Paul Giamatti. Oh, it's perfect. That's a great, a great one. So uh, check out our Twitter page for more and uh, tweet at us. We'll keep on uh, talking about this uh, all week on Twitter. Okay, so now I'm really ready. Let's talk about The Wizard of Oz. Let's do it. So, Amy, this is probably going to be one of the most universal, popular movies that we are going to do on this entire podcast. I think you're right. If we were ranking the AFI Top 100 based on movies everybody knows, Wizard of Oz is probably at the top. And I think it's because it's a kid's movie. I was yes. thinking about this when we were sitting down, that a kid's movie is universal. Every kid will watch children's entertainment. And it's when you grow up that you get all segmented and you're like, I'm a Clint Eastwood guy. Like, I, oh, no, I only like romances. It's one of those things that's ingrained in your like psyche as a child because your parents showed it to you. Then you show it to your kids. And you don't even know why you're doing it. You're just like, I did this. Now you have to do it, too. Like, well, that's a rite of passage in a way. I remember when The Wizard of Oz was a special thing that came on TV once a year. And yeah. it was the biggest deal ever. And my mother telling me, your grandmother saw this in the theater when she was a little girl, and it was the first color movie she ever saw, and that my grandmother was stunned when they opened the door into Oz, and it suddenly color. And I was thinking, The Wizard of, of Oz might be that for our generation in reverse. This was the first black and white movie I might have ever seen. I remember, like, your parents telling you, like, don't worry, it will become color soon. <laughs> Like, it will become more color than you have ever seen. <laughs> it will become the colorist of all colors. There's going to be plastic flowers and flowers going out of shoes. It. What is so impressive about this movie, because I haven't watched it in years, um, I, but I'm familiar with it. It feels, you know, from the pop culture-ness of this movie, I just, everything feels familiar. But when it came out, not a not a financial success. No, I think it came out right before World War II began. So yes. people just got distracted and... Critics loved it for the most part. Like, we're going to read yeah. some bad reviews. We're going to read some real bad reviews. But people thought this was like a kid's fantasy. They're like, it's a technician's triumph was a thing they said. What I did kind of forget was the beginning, like this first 15 minutes in Kansas. I know it was, I would even say it's more sepia than it is even black and white. Um, 
you're in this world. But I, I was like, oh, we're in this world for longer than I remember. Like, I didn't remember her ever visiting the wizard on the side of the road. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay. It felt like I was watching deleted scenes in a weird way. Yeah, and how different her character kind of is at the beginning. Because I pictured Dorothy just this calm, plucky girl. And in these first sepia scenes, she's like this hysterical child that everybody thinks is melodramatic. She's like me yeah. in college. She's like, <laughs> everything's crazy. Pay attention to me. And they're like, Dorothy, chill out. It's a pig. The pig is not a big deal. <laughs> like, I don't know why she's so – I've never lived with a bunch of pigs. But is it really that scary Oh, it's fall ve- into a Oh, it's pig? so scary. Because, you know, really? you saw you saw the movie Hannibal with Anthony. <laughs> don't they – feed all their remains to the pigs. Pigs will eat anything. They'll eat little <laughs> girls in blue dresses. Uh, can I ask you a question? How old is Judy Garland supposed to be? Okay. Well, they don't really say, but you can retrofit it by looking at Return to Oz, okay. who's 16 there. And from the way she talks about her experiences in war in the land of Oz, I think she's about 11. Wow. Okay. And then Judy Garland, when she did this movie, was actually 16. But now watching it, I was like, that kind of hysteria that she has seems out of place because if she's younger, you would buy it maybe a little bit more. But because she looks old, you're like, you should be over this. Maybe pigs aren't that scary. But, you know, you're living in Kansas. You don't have that much entertainment. Everything's exciting. Like you got to – I mean, the excitement wave, you know, the peaks and valleys go with what you see. So if you're a kid who grew up in Manhattan, you're like, dude, getting stabbed on the street, no biggie. Not a problem. Not but a it, problem. But then if you're like Kevin McAllister, that little wimp, when his parents leave him a home alone, he freaks out. You know, come on. Big city kid could take that, no problem. And she's so naive. I mean, the scene that you were talking about where she meets the wizard who's, you know, traveling as this mythical fortune teller man. Yes. That scene is so funny with how naive she is because she's saying like, oh, you see an old woman after he's like rifled through her bag and pulled out a picture of an old woman. That's Aunt M. And he goes, her name is Emily. Like that's just this brilliant deduction. And she thinks he's amazing for guessing that M means Emily. Well, you know what I realized on this like watch was this movie is more – pointed and funny at points than I ever, there are like some jokes and some very strong point of view uh, throughout it. Even like that title card at the top of the film, it seems like you're in for something. This is not a kid's movie. It has more weight to it. What, what does it say? What it says, time has been powerless to put its kindly philosophy out of fashion about the story of the Wizard of yeah. Oz, which is already old. Like the time is powerless to put this kindly story out of fashion. That's a defensive and angry and impassioned. <laughs> oh, and you know what I love about that moment since we're talking about it is when you listen to the sound of the wind underneath it. Yeah. It's human beings. Wait, let's listen to this. Okay. Those are human beings being wind. I love I that. I love that. And by the way, like this movie came out in what, 1939. And there is like a sense of like the old school movie magic here. I felt like, you know, you you see like the spit on this movie. It's like, yeah, humans are doing the wind. You know, they were, they were figuring out. I don't know. There's something very tactile about this whole movie on every level, I feel like. Yeah, I can't even really articulate. You're helping me articulate why the humans doing the wind is so magical to me. This idea of we're not going to use a sound effect for this. You're going to know the effort, the humans. The We're not going to have like... 12 little people. We're going to have 100 little people. And they're all going to have different costumes. They're not even going to be in a uniform. Well, Everyone's going to be individualized. And when you see that, we talked about like the idea of like going from black and white to color, which is already at that time probably mind-blowing. But then when you start to see those munchkin heads like peek out from underneath like the flowers, you – I think my first reaction, as it was as an adult who's already seen the movie, was like, whoa. Like, and, then, and then when you see them all come in, and there are so many of them, 
This must have blown people's mind. And I say that in the sense that, and I hope this doesn't come across in any way crass or, uh, you know, I'm talking of the time in 1939. Your familiarity with there being that many little people, that must have even, like, just to capture that would have been crazy, I When think. have we even seen that except in The Wizard of Oz now? Yeah. It's still The Wizard of Oz. And also that opening shot you're describing the camera is right behind the trees of Oz. It's that Jason horror movie slasher yeah. shot. It's a little ominous. You're behind these trees and there come the heads. But if you please, what are munchkins? The little people who live in this land, it's munchkin land. And you are their national heroine, my dear. What I like about this movie is it walks the line of creepy and magical. It's just not saccharine. I think that... Uh, people celebrate this movie in a very saccharine way. It's like, oh, it's Wizard of Oz, it's so nice. But it has a little edge. It has a little bite. And that's what I was saying a little bit before. It's like, you know, like the opening title card. You would never see that before Minions. Like, get ready. You can never, don't worry about it. Timelessness will never affect the Minions. Yo, you Twitter haters tried to kill Minions? <laughs> Can't do it. Can't kill those Minions. Uh, but, you know, it's like there is an energy of it that, is, that feels adult. Well, what's interesting, too, is even if this is kids-ish, it always teeters on the side of being too much for kids. Like, I heard that right. what they had to do a lot when they were editing it is cut out so much of the Wicked Witch stuff because it was just freaking kids out. They took it far. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, this is a kids movie where in the Munchkin land, they open up a giant certificate of death. They're like, no, there's death here. There's death everywhere. By the way, uh, I was thinking if I could own any movie memorabilia prop, I want certificate of death. That <gasps> is a great – it looks great. It's like, whoa, I love that. Um, no, yeah, and the witch is – the witch is intense. I mean, the witch is, and I, I think I like that things could be this scary to kids. I feel like everything now has become a lot more sanitized. Like these things wouldn't get through. And and again, this is a very bright, light, fun movie, but I like that they push it. I like that, you know, they should scare kids a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this witch is so scary that 40 years after The Wizard of Oz comes out, she goes on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as herself to talk to kids about how she's a real person oh. and not a terrifying witch. And to set the scene, by the way, she shows up dressed like a normal person. Mr. Rogers gives her a witch costume, and she's putting it on and transforming herself oh. into the witch so you can see how it's a thing you put on and take off. Well, there's your old friend, the Wicked Witch of the West. How did she, <laughs> how did she talk? Well, she talked like this. It's very nice to see you. <laughs> oh, that would be fun to be able to talk like, <laughs> like you that. You can. Ooh. They all can. You can do it, too. Sure. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's that is amazing. That reminds me of I was scared of uh, Bruce Banner turning into the Hulk on the Hulk TV show, and my mom brought me into the bathroom to paint me green to show me that that it's you know it's just an act. It's just an act. Uh, that and, reminds me of what I want to do as a critic. I want to go to the set of a horror movie and watch uh, somebody get flayed because it terrifies me, and I can't appreciate squib work because it's too real. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm a child when it comes to horror movies. Everything is still 100% real. It's a person dying. I, <laughs> I love that, and maybe you should keep it because I feel like your reaction will be much more visceral. Like You become jaded if you know how it's all done. You're like, oh, that little doll, Chucky, really just killed that, that person. <laughs> There's nothing scarier than a little doll when you're a kid. There's oh. not, when you're a little, there's nothing scarier than seeing a doll in any room. Also, to go back to the idea of special effects in this movie and just how astounding it was, that twister gave people nightmares, which is fascinating to me because I grew up being like, oh, it's a, I guess it's a twister right. or whatever. They really actually did invest a ton in trying to make a great tornado. And what they wound up working with was 
basically a stocking that yes. had a wench on the top and like a wench on the bottom. So you could rotate the top and bottom in two different, I'm using my hands right now. I'm I look like I'm it, making yeah. this crazy 3D pizza or summoning a spell. But they had this vacuum hose thing going that was loose and floppy and rotating like crazy. And then they would put dust down the middle of it. So it would stir up dust at the bottom. I do love this too, by the way, when the house is, um, you know, in the twister, what is going on outside of her window is just downright great. I mean, you get like why this movie has like all these psychedelic elements. I mean, you know, most famously, you know, the whole idea that if you watch this movie and it syncs up perfectly with, uh, you know, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon because it is so inviting in so many ways. It's song, it's musical, it's, you know, it's like talking lines. The trees, the trees are fucking scary. They're so scary. I mean, you get a second scary tree later when you're outside the witch's house with like these owls and these vultures that are totally stuffed animal looking. They don't even try to make them look real. They're just like, here's a vulture and its eyes are bright red. There was danger to it. There is like these monkeys. I would not want those monkeys coming. Like if those monkeys came down right now, like, Give me the same exact effect in a movie. It would be more scary than any CGI creature to see like a almost human sized monkey. Just their face wasn't scary to me. Like, no, thank you. No, thank you. Well, when the monkeys tear apart the scarecrow, that is horrific. Oh, it's terrifying. And you see him like ripped to shreds like that. They're stomping on him. I mean, they're wild. Like that brings us to the perennial question of the show so far, which is do the Simpsons make a reference to this film? Okay, let's see. Fly, my pretties. Fly. <laughs> Continue the research. It passes the Simpson test, which is, I think, of the most important test to see if this has really invaded pop culture. And by the way, another thing, I, I, I jumped out of my seat when I saw it. I was like, lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. That's from this movie. I didn't know that that was from this movie. I thought that was like just a thing that people said when they went to the circus. You know, Judy plays this whole last segment of the film breathless. Like, I don't even know how she did it, but you hear it in her voice. She's like gasping for air. It sounds like she's like, this is happening and this is happening. And she sounds terrified. And by the way, I thought her parents, I'm not on, on board with her parents. They gave away her dog way too quick. In the beginning, right? When the Wicked Witch, or I'm sorry, excuse me, I'll use her real name here. When uh, Elmira Gulch is holding this dog that she said bit her, she's just holding this dog like she's not afraid of it at all. She's like, this dog's a menace, and I'm going to hold it like a pillow. And so you just know she's trying to kill it out of spite. And But the parents seemed pretty okay with it. It wasn't, there was no, like, I want to like, I, I, I want to get into it with Dorothy's parents. Like, hey guys, let, let's just try to, you know, mediate a situation here. Just don't give it to the crazy lady to go kill. Oh, yeah, well, is it because it's their aunt and uncle and so they're like, whatever, we don't oh, care about yeah. you as much? Well, in the original <laughs> screen drafts, Aunt M was even meaner. Like, they oh, wrote really? this horrible version of Aunt M and then they're like, Whoa. why would Dorothy want to go home at all? Which to me is a big question. Like, yeah. when you're in Oz, I want to stay in Oz. Like, Oz is so awesome that Dorothy's like, get me back to Kansas. She seems to be well-liked uh, and having a great time there. Stay there. You got those slippers? Go for it. Yeah, she's like, I'll never leave here again. And it's like, shouldn't this lesson be like, you did a great job. You're brave. You can go anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, she should be like, I want to move to the big city and make it. Yeah, um, it's just like, I'll never leave my backyard. That's depressing. <laughs> By the way, they also do a really bold thing in the scene where she opens the door into color. 
with the sound and oh yeah, really the use of silence. So pardon us, we're going to have a podcast with a touch of silence because I think it's so effective. The idea that this isn't just a, we think of the visual part here, yeah, but it's so auditory. It's almost like making you lean forward to see what's going on. Yeah, there's so much suspense in silence. Wow, that's real. That's a nice. That's I mean, that's a big. I didn't even realize that in the moment. It, that's a long period of time to really go to go silent. It's such a huge shift from the drama of the house plummeting to earth to then her just walking through the house and then a total switch in tone, a total switch in sound. Do you know how they did that color transition? That they painted her back black and white. So basically they were shooting on a color camera, but they the way they shot it was through the door was obviously color, so that's what you're catching. But then they painted the sets black and white and her back black and white so she could do that walk into it. So that because it was like two different, you know, it was color and black and white at the same time. Whoa, pre- so yeah. it's just all practical. Yeah. Which Can is you pretty- imagine like, just getting your hair dyed sapia? Oh, <laughs> I'm sure it didn't come out forever. <laughs> Paul, I want to get your take on this one sound clip that we hear from the Scarecrow right when Dorothy first meets him. And he's hung up on a pole because he has a line delivery. And I swear to the life of me, it sounds like he's going to say something much worse, much more are possibly X-rated. How do you do? How do you do? Very well, thank you. Oh, I'm not feeling at all well. You see, it's very tedious being stuck up here all day long with a pole up your back. (laughs) With a pole? What's happening? You're right. I felt it. Can I say that I thought the lion... Was legitimately funny. I thought Bert Lahr was re- like gave a really great performance that I never fully appreciated before. Uh, it's kind of the Lions movie. I was realizing this time he's yeah. one of the only people who gets a second solo song where he's talking which about was a his waste. Courage. I thought that like I was like, why did like r- is right before they meet the wizard and like get me to the wizard. I want to hear the song. I, like <laughs> the only part of the movie I didn't like was the second song of it. Wait, I kind of like that song for a couple of reasons. All right, let me like, hear. One, when they're making that whole processional and giving yeah. him a cape and uh, Dorothy's walking up, Judy Garland trips on the carpet and they keep it in. And I love that. I love that sort of detail. <laughs> and two, when you listen to the lyrics, they're so surreal. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? Courage. What makes the hot and top so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You can say that again. Okay, what yes. I love about that is that is basically the Alanis Morissette ironic of 1939 <laughs> because none of those things have anything to do with courage. The ape in apricot. <laughs> I didn't even think about it until you just said that. I was like, yep, okay, yeah, that all makes sense. And yeah, no, that that makes makes no sense. However, we should talk, though, about how awesome this lion costume is. I don't think I realized the detail of how the haunches go down to his knees. He's really got cat-looking legs. And the way his tail, 
his tail is amazing. The way it's always like up in his face, it's like drying his tears out. It's flicking and doing its own thing like a real cat in the background. Yeah, I I, I appreciate the childlike nature of it. That's why like the plastic, the flowers look plastic. It's it's sort of like. It's the way a child would envision it, not the way that, like, Jerry Bruckheimer would envision it. It's true. I mean, when you look at what the munchkin land even is, it's like you're imagining – I think I even read that they were trying to think of what a little girl would imagine a small world was like. So it's all modeled after mushrooms and things a girl might see in her backyard. Everything in this movie looks so beautiful, and it feels so natural, even though it's so unrealistic. Now, I do have one problem with the movie, the ending. I'm along for this ride, but the water wasn't even a plan. Like, no one was like, we got to throw water on the witch. It just happened that there was a bucket of water there, and they just threw it, but they weren't even throwing it at her. And I'm like, this whole, like, finale is just happenstance. Like, that to me felt like the laziest thing. I love this movie, but I was like... When I watched it, I was like, oh, I thought for sure that that was part of the thing. Like, just don't get her wet. Just don't get her wet. As an audience member, you don't know about the wet. It just happens that there's a bucket full of water in that moment. If that didn't happen, this movie would have gone in a terribly different direction. They would have all been killed. They all would have died. Yeah. I mean, she's sitting there waiting for herself to die and, like, chewing on this napkin and being like, I'm dead now. Ah, You cursed rat. Look what you've done. I'm melting. I've been thinking about this, too. They don't even imply that water could kill her to the audience. Yeah. Because I feel like if we did this today, you'd get that studio note like, they don't even know, though, that water can kill her. We should at least tell the audience and make it this loaded gun under the table thing. A hundred percent. Look, the movie already does it. You introduce an axe in the first act, and then they use it in the third act. We need that for the witch, too. I mean, if this was the gremlins, they make it very clear, don't get them wet. That's, we need rules. Oh, whoa, whoa. By the way, did you notice that the scarecrow, when they're approaching the witch, has a tiny little gun? They give the what? scarecrow a tiny gun. He's I did holding not like a little gangster that. pistol. Oh, my gosh. I want to see the scene where he's like blowing <laughs> away monkeys with his little gun. Did you notice, by the way, that there was an academic paper done called, quote, Cross-Evaluation of Metrics to Estimate the Significance of Creative Works. This is done whoa. by Northwestern. Okay. And they were trying to figure out a way to do what we're doing on the show, like predict a movie's significance. And they decided oh, really? the best way to predict a movie's significance was not by like reading critical reviews or maybe doing what we're doing now, yeah. which is like putting all of our faith in a list, but by seeing how much that movie was referenced by future directors, like how much that movie oh, is wow. repeated and reiterated and like shows up in different forms throughout the culture. So wh- like where did Wizard of Oz fall on this list? Number one. Yeah, it has to, right? The top 10 goes like this. Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Psycho, Casablanca, Gone with the Wind, King Kong, Frankenstein, The Godfather, Citizen Kane, 2001. Wow, that's a pretty solid list. Pretty solid list. I think every single one of those is on our top 100 as well. But I want to like zero in on the first two, Star Wars and Wizard of Oz, because Star Wars is the Wizard of Oz. I mean, Star Wars is so much the Wizard of Oz. Like even when Star Wars comes out, Roger Ebert wrote about it. He said... Star Wars is a fairy tale, a fantasy, a legend, finding its roots in some of our most popular fictions. The golden robot, lion-faced space pilot, and insecure little computer on wheels must have been suggested by the Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, the Scarecrow, and the Wizard of Oz. Wow. So they're just drawing this line right away. I mean, I read an interview with Mark Hamill where he said that he played Luke Skywalker like he was Dorothy. So the idea that the top two films 
are just these repeater clones. Like, I don't know, like a Wi-Fi repeater or something. Yeah, no, that's really fascinating. It's like, it's one is the 1940 version and one is the 1976 version. I mean, it's like, it is the hero's journey. I mean, Joseph Campbell, I think when you talk about Star Wars, it's often like Joseph Campbell, hero's journey. But this is also the hero's journey. It's almost the exact same Story. I mean, it is. It's you know, but no one ever goes like, "Oh, well, Wizard of Oz is a classic hero's journey." It's always Star Wars is that, but it's interesting. Yeah, I feel like do we not just call things the classic hero's journey when they star a little girl? Yeah, I bet you that's a, there's a truth to that. <sighs> well, I did I find this interview with Mark Hamill where he talks about the tonal similarity that he mm-hmm. saw with Wizard of Oz and Star Wars. Okay. The thing that's really winning about Star Wars is it's not like we're winking at the camera, like isn't this cute kind of camp stuff. Uh, it's very sincere. It's like we'd all gotten into a time machine and were transported back to the 30s where it wasn't corny anymore. Yeah. Because you see old movies and, you, and they were made seriously and now they're funny. And this one was funny but made seriously. That's a really interesting point. And I think that these movies that are timeless like that, they have to have this energy about them. Because Star Wars at that time, I think, was almost going to be written off as an absurd kind of cheesy B-movie. But it's when you can walk that line of absolute absurdity, but you play it real, that it becomes timeless. And there's this idea of trusting what your movie is so much that you don't pander. The way that Wizard of Oz, you know, they had a song in here called The Jitterbug, Mm -hmm. where it was like, the jitterbug, bug, bug, bug. Have you heard this song? Oh, it's amazing. We should play a little clip of it because I believe that this song if put in, dates the movie. Exactly. They were like, hey, let's appeal. You can imagine the studio meeting. Like, hey, let's appeal to the young kids. Let's get a hip song in there. Yeah. And that kills it. All right, dancing dudes. Let's take a break, and when we come back, let's talk to the number one Wizard of Oz superfan, Walter Kruger. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by a brand new podcast called The Gateway, which is an investigative series that focuses on a spiritual guru named Teal Swan. Have you heard about Teal Swan, Amy? No, but Teal Swan, I'd I'd believe in her. Well, um, this character basically drew in followers with her hypnotic self-help YouTube videos aimed at people who were struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. She insists that therapy saves lives, but critics say that her death-focused dogma is dangerous. Ooh, okay, I will be honest. I'm, now I'm scared again. I, I was down for the name. Now I want to know more about it, which is lucky because The Gateway is hosted by Gizmodo reporter Jennings Brown, who's going to travel everywhere in search of the real Teal Swan story. I mean, we're talking... Mm. Rural Utah, the forests of Costa Rica. He's going to talk to Teal. He's going to talk to our inner circle. He's going to try to understand what is happening with this YouTube guru. And find out why all of her followers are dying. What? Why we're all dying? (laughs) So this is fascinating. This is kind of like your new wild, wild country. Listen to The Gateway now on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash gateway and use the promo code unspooled to get a free month of Stitcher Premium. Amy, are you on Stitcher Premium? Both of course. I, I really like it. I feel like they have uh, upgraded the game in a major, major way. If you are a Howl listener and you have not switched over, you should definitely do so. If you've never joined up and you listen to podcasts a lot, uh, Stitcher Premium is a great way to kind of get all your great podcasts ad-free. You got everything in there. So good. 
All right. So, Amy, uh, we're doing something a little interesting today. I think The Wizard of Oz is one of those films that is iconic, and I think we're surrounded by it. I think that the images of Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion are not only in pop culture, but on anything from, you know, ornaments on a Christmas tree to plates to Halloween costumes. More than any other film of its time, Wizard of Oz has left behind a merchandising legacy. And, you know, I love Wizard of Oz. You love Wizard of Oz. A lot of people love Wizard of Oz. But there's somebody out there who loves, all caps, screaming loves. Guys, let's talk to Wizard of Oz superfan Walter Kruger. Hey, Walter, where are you talking to us from today? Hey there, uh, I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. Walter, is it safe to say that you have the biggest Wizard of Oz uh, collection, like of merchandise? Uh, I would say I have one of the biggest and most complete collections in the United States, if not the world. There are other people that have more than I do, um, and they've been in the game much longer of collecting than I have. Yeah, you don't sound very old. No, I'm actually only 33. On Monday, I turned 33, so... (laughs) Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Wait, are you collectors competitive with each other? No, actually, it's not really a competitive market. It's it's more of a family and a community. We like to call ourselves the Oz community. And um, it's just a network of people such as yourselves who have just a general appreciation for good and classic films, um, all the way to people who are like me that must have every single ornament and plate ever made with Dorothy on it. (laughs) Well, Walter, I wanted to ask you because you said the word complete. And so I like that idea. Like, so what is complete? Is that like, do you have stuff from when the film first came out or do you like, where, where does your collection kind of begin? Well, Wizard of Oz was originally a children's book in the 1900s written by L. Frank Bond and illustrated by W. Dunswell. Um, it was a very uh, cutting-edge, turn-of-the-century way of telling stories, uh, like a, a point across to children. When I say complete with my collection, I have things from that era, from 1900s, before the movie. Wow. I have things from the movie, and then things from the afterlife, which is Wicked, Return to Oz, all of those sequels that have come out, Oz the Great and Powerful with James Franco. So you don't consider like the James Franco stuff like antithetical or blemishing The Wizard of Oz? You, you, no, all... no. Having movies like the James Franco movie or Wicked or the Return to Oz movie from the 80s of Feruza Balk, um, those help the Oz legacy live on. As long as it keeps that, that story, those morals, those characters fresh and alive, I'm all for it. Well, now, let me ask you a question about the merchandise. I'm sure that you have... You know, been collecting for a while, you understand the history of it. And I compared it to Star Wars. Is that an apt comparison? Was this a was this a, an anomaly at the time to have so much uh, tie-in merchandising to a film? Well, The Wizard of Oz was one of the very first films to actually have a merchandising license and to actually hand out licensing to promote a film in such a um, wide range. The only other company that had done that prior was Walt Disney. And that was at the time of when Snow White had come out, and Metro Golden Mayor was looking for a film that could kind of butt up against that popularity. And so Ruby Mayor purchased The Wizard of Oz. Oh, wow, that's so interesting about Snow White. You know, I think when movies are this popular like this, um, knockoffs are bound to happen. 
uh, when I went to Pixar one time, they have an entire display case. It's beautifully set up like a museum of all the uh, like the knockoff merchandise of Pixar stuff. And it's like, you know, it's like a Woody that kind of looks like Woody, but not really like Woody. Do you have anything like that, like a rare version of uh, of a Dorothy or something like that? Um, there were quite a few uh, attempts, like companies that would kind of mock or copy is one about um, – a girl who goes over a rainbow with her pet cat. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, now, I think that's lovely. I love a pet cat. (laughs) I know that these objects are priceless to you, but I just want to really understand, like, how much have you spent on this collection? Well, I I could say that I spent many hours on it, and monetarily, I've spent, well, now, probably near the $700,000, dollars $800,000 mark. Wow. Yeah. They'll, you know what? This is I. I salute you as someone who likes to collect and and be surrounded by the things that I love. You have done it in a way that I mean that is impressive. Like, do you want to show people this? I mean, you said that there are private collections, and and it seemed like when you said that in the beginning, it was sort of like, oh, well, they're private. Like, uh, is there a way to see your collection? Is there a way that you want to get it out there? Uh, you know. Oh yes, actually, my biggest dream and my greatest ambition of my life, my life's goal is to take all of this and someday share it with the public in a museum setting. So families and fans and anybody who has an appreciation for the sum and the legacy of it could come and visit in my museum. That that would be amazing. And, and what a perfect home. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better audience to see uh, all this memorabilia. Where do you keep it? Well, right now it's in Chicago with me um, at my house. <laughs> I have three very large rooms okay. in my home and they're all on display. I throw usually a party here once a year for my very close Oz friends in the Oz community, and I show my collection then. Walter, do you mind if I ask what you do for a living, how you afford this? Um, uh, I actually, I do a lot of different things. I am currently right now, I guess I could call myself an entrepreneur and pursuing my museum. Um, I also do a little marketing here and there for various companies producing Wizard of Oz items. I also run a Wizard of Oz, one of the largest in the world, Wizard of Oz groups off of Facebook, which has close to 7,000 members. We're called Wizard of Oz Collectors United. Um, you can check us out on Facebook. So I just basically my job is my, my hobby and my love and my cat. That's wow. what I do. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you, why do you think the Wizard of Oz endures? Like, why... You know, to this day, do parents put on The Wizard of Oz and kids fall in love with it all over again? You know, what do you think makes it so timeless? It is, it, it is an example of seeing a self, the viewer who is watching this, you see self-reflection of what we all long for in life. It is a metaphor for life that is written simply for children to understand, but also is complex in a way that adults can appreciate too. And I think the metaphor of the yellow road is the path that we're all on. And where are we trying to go? We're all trying to get to that emotion. We're all trying to beat that wizard in our life. And I think that's why it resonates and stays timeless, because it is a metaphor for life. I, I feel like we have said it all, but I want to ask you one question, and I hope it does not cause any anxiety or panic. But if I was to take away everything, everything from your collection and leave you with one <laughs> item, what would that item be? What, like out of your entire collection, what is your favorite piece? My favorite piece in my collection 
the lamp that my mother had made for me when I was about five or six years old for Christmas one year. My mother's no longer with us, so um, it was something that she would take out and she'd bring me to school. She'd take it out and paint it. It was like a chalkware lamp. Oh, wow. So she would paint it for me. It was a do-it-yourself kind of thing. And she put like a little gingham lampshade on it. And um, that's probably the one thing out of everything Oh my gosh, you just nailed every single answer that we, uh, yeah, that was beautiful. Well, well, I got one tricky one as as we say goodbye, Walter. Is there a proper Wizard of Oz sign-off that we should use in in Oz-related situations where people who love this movie say goodbye to each other? I don't want to say goodbye to each other. I think everybody knows the one thing. And it's, it just close your eyes and tap your heels together three times and think to yourself, there's no place like home. You know, Paul, I am always trying to keep up with what's cool, and that's why I would like to recommend everybody the podcast Who Charted, where every week comedian Howard Kramer brings his funniest friends on to discuss the top five songs and movies of the week. I love Who Charted. I've been on it a handful of times, and Howard Kramer is one of my favorite hosts on the Earwolf Network. He is now joined by a new co-host, Natasha Legero, who is equally hilarious. Uh, you may know She's her. awesome. So good. She's on Another Period, and she also just did that Netflix special, uh, the Honeymoon Stand-Up Special. She's on my top five list. What Ooh, do you think about that? I'll take it. I mean, She's on mine, too. Um, They'll talk about everything from mumble rap to new country music, um, Neil Young versus Jimmy Buffett, and which movies just seem too loud? Which is some of them. I will go with them there. Yeah, I I agree. There's some movies that are too loud. Plus, each episode, Howard, Natasha, and their special comedian guest will share their hot picks with listeners, things that they recommend over all the other garbage on the charts. They have so many great guests on the show. Their backlog is incredibly impressive. Uh, But if you want to just jump in right now, you can listen to episodes with Ben Schwartz, uh, John Early, and Kate Berlant, and Earwolf's own Paul F. Tompkins. If Paul has been on the show, you know it's good. Hi, Paul. <laughs> oh, wait, two Pauls. Whoa. I, Whoa. Just got, I just got Paulitis. I know, but I knew which one you were talking about. So listen <laughs> to Who Charted on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back. And Amy, I want to talk to you about something that Walter said about MGM buying the rights of The Wizard of Oz. Did you know that uh, MGM paid $75,000 for the rights of the Wizard of Oz book, which back in that time, now, we always kind of do this thing where we set the stage of what was going on. All right, so $75,000 is how much they paid to have the rights to make this movie. But the average cost of a house in 1939, $3,800. Right, the average uh, wage per year one thousand seven hundred thirty. So you're telling me you could buy two thousand five hundred houses for the cost of just the script of this, and then yeah. let alone making the film. I know, isn't that crazy? Like just to get the rights to make it into a film. You could populate Kansas. You could just have an entire town of Kansas and call it Ozville. I mean, what? I want to go and find out what Frank Baum did with that money. That's. I'm guessing he invested it in gold because wasn't that the whole thing that the Yellow Brick Road was based on his financial idea that gold is the thing that will take you where you need to go well, in life. Well, by the way, he should have been right now. I mean, he's been right in the pocket with uh, all the commercials going on. <laughs> um, also, just again, to kind of paint the picture of the time, I know we talked about World War II, but Hitler invaded Poland four days after Wizard of Oz premiered. Jesus, that's even quicker than I thought. I mean, I guess talk about like stealing the thunder. Yeah, I mean, this was a, in, 1939 is an interesting time. Amelia Earhart was declared dead after her plane uh, disappeared two years prior, which we now know. All the reasons she was found. Uh, Do you think they made jokes about Amelia Earhart going over the rainbow? <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? Like, that seems like a, like an 
old tweet, like a I ye feel, old tweet. I feel like if, if it was a little bit closer, then it would have worked out probably better. I feel like now they're like, oh, we got to declare it dead. I mean, I did see a comic from the time where they drew Hitler as uh, – the evil witch. Oh, really? And then um, the cowardly line is basically America being like, we're not so cowardly, you'll see. In this time, other movies that were kind of popular, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, Of Mice and Men, Weathering Heights, Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's interesting because it, it really, I think, sticks out like a sore thumb in a weird way. I could see how it wasn't taken very seriously. And we, I know we've kind of found some reviews that people appreciated the movie but did not give it its due, per se. Well, let's let's hear some of these main reviews. Okay. On this point of what was happening politically-wise, the uh, magazine The Daily Worker, you know, which mm-hmm. is a political a magazine. Of course, I read wrote, it all the time. <laughs> it had this criticism of The Wizard of Oz. It said, the social angle of the picture is comparatively nil, and they regret that MGM neglected this opportunity to satirize dictators. Wow. Right? Like, can you imagine the political spin on this where – the wizard himself is like this empty, puffing fascist. I mean, would you have wanted the wizard to look like, you know, like uh, like Hitler, uh, you know, have like a little mustache? <laughs> By the way, I'm still trying to figure out how the wizard's technology worked. I mean, that's the most complex puppet, and it doesn't seem like he's doing anything. That seems like me when I'm pretending to fake type. It's like, that, 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 that. there's pulleys, there's levers, and it's just a, basically a hologram screen. I mean, there's nothing going on. But no, that makes it better that it it's not... The wizard isn't a dictator. He's just kind of an empty suit, which is more of an interesting idea that is, again, timeless. You know, like a person in power who doesn't really, who, you know, uh, makes a big noise but isn't actually anything behind the curtain. You know, the, the, the emperor has no clothes kind of idea. Yeah, I think about this a lot right now as a critic in the time of Trump. Yeah. That every movie feels like it has a Trump connection. and. And does it, and do I want to keep talking about it? And everything is like X in the time of Trump. You know, we right. keep analyzing but art through that, which has its pros and cons. And I really wrestle with how much to do that in my reviews. So I would read a couple more negative yes. reviews. And I want to just say, by the way, people are using language in these that we wouldn't use today. So yes. I'm sorry. That is my we're not, caveat. We're not advocating this language. We're not advocating this language um, because just times change. Uh, but the New Republic wrote, quote, Oz Oz has dwarfs, music, technicolor, freak characters, and Judy Garland. It can't be expected to have humor as well. And for the light touch of fantasy, it weighs like a pound of fruitcake soaking wet. That is one of the best quotes of all time. (laughs) Um, Time Magazine wrote, As long as Oz sticks to whimsy and magic, it floats in the same rare atmosphere of enchantment that distinguished Snow White. When it descends to Earth, it collapses like a scarecrow in a cloud burst. And then it goes on to say its final scene is as sentimental as Little Women, and its singer midgets go through their paces with the bored sophistication of slightly evil children. These heartless, heartless critics. (laughs) Well, Amy, let me ask you a question, because I'm always wondering about this. When you watch a movie, like, if you were to review Wizard of Oz, are you looking at that differently than you would look at, um, you know, like, uh, The Phantom Thread? Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought that up, because I was thinking— Thinking about The Wizard of Oz, that there is this tendency to dismiss or undervalue or not expect the same things out of a children's film when you're reviewing it. To either pat it on the head and give it an easy pass, like, oh, it's dumb, but kids will like it because it's dumb, and to underestimate children, which really offends me. I feel like children have standards. And you know what also pops out to me about this review is it compares it to Snow White, which everybody was doing when The Wizard of Oz came out. Oh, interesting. I think of these films as two separate things now, because in the course of history, it's like there's Snow White, which I saw here, and then there's The Wizard of Oz, which I saw later. But these two films 
coming out really close to each other. They were having a conversation. People were comparing them instantly because they were two films about, you know, a magical woman with a bunch of little people in this fantasy land with musical numbers. I mean, a lot of why they wanted to kill Somewhere Over the Rainbow is they wanted the songs to be cheerful like they were in Snow White. So it was trying to rip it off kind of. that It was sort of trying to get that Snow White audience. So interesting. And that's why I think probably the movie did not do so well in its original theatrical run. It only was later that it kind of came to be this cult thing. And maybe it was the separation of those two films that allowed it to kind of be its own thing and not just, you know, a direct comparison to something that was already popular. Like these things, Disney was just ping-ponging off. All these Disney classics that we see in isolation because the year after Wizard of Oz comes out, then you have Pinocchio. And Pinocchio's blue fairy descending in a bubble, straight fucking ripoff of Wizard of Oz. It's crazy. You know, it's it's interesting though because even though it had this reception and, and wasn't a tremendous financial success, it was still nominated for Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Best Art Direction, Best Effects, Best Musical Score, Original Song, and Best Academy Juvenile Award, which I think they should bring back. I would love to give Best Juvenile Academy to people. There's oh so many gosh. people for that every year. Oh, it'd be amazing. Uh, it did So it did win for Over the Rainbow. So it was nominated for the other ones, but it lost out to, and this is, by the way, at the 12th Academy Award, uh, Gone with the Wind was the big winner of this year, which is interesting. Like Those are the two big films like and they're so different yeah but they're directed by two of the same people it's like either way victor fleming and george kukor are like yeah we did a good job so i'm confused about this there are four directors listed for the movie yeah this is the mgm madness because they're making two giant films at this point okay they're making wizard of oz and gone with the wind okay and so two of the directors that we have here just got also thrown back and forth with gone with the wind people are gonna be like swapped in with the craziness over so it's there. like a construction crew it's like all right you're working over here today you're working over here today yeah, exactly wow. like victor fleming uh you're gonna do uh, you're gonna leave this go to gone with the wind for a second and victor fleming's like but i'm really cool and i'm yeah. like in wizard of oz actually i don't know if you really said that but victor <laughs> fleming by the way talking about getting a serious your performance yeah. out of Judy Garland, he slapped her once on set when she was having the hard time keeping a straight face. He like went up to her, he smacked her across the face when she couldn't stop giggling. Ironically, it was like when she was slapping the lion. Oh, she really? slapping the lion, she would laugh. He was like, enough with this. So he went over there and then he slapped her and then she was able to slap the lion and not laugh. And then he felt really bad. So he asked her to hit him in the face and instead Judy Garland gave him a kiss. Wow, that's really like making lemonade out of lemons there. MGM, seemingly the worst studio of all time. I know this simply by listening to You Must Remember This. Their series on MGM made me go, wow. It's so awesome. (laughs) No, it is violent. You know, another interesting connection to Snow White is that the girl's voice heard in The Tin Man's If I Only Had a Heart belongs to Adriana Casalotti, who was Snow White. Oh, whoa. I didn't yeah. know that. Wait, okay. You want to know another yeah. weird thing about that Tin Man scene? Yeah. The witch throws this, like, fire grenade at them. Yes. Right? Oh, yeah, I wrote this And thing. he dive bombs on it. Yeah. It's like the, it's a military scene. It's like this <laughs> sacrificial scene. Like, that scene should be a big deal. I feel like yeah. I never noticed that he's like, I will kill myself for all of you. And it's just a thing that happens. Well, I think maybe his whole thought is that I, you can't kill me because I'm made of tin. I don't know. That's true. Can you even kill the scarecrow? You can pull them apart and then you just put them back together. Yeah, they're they're just, I mean, they all are not human. How rad is it that when they punch the Tin Man on the chest, just kind of like, hey, buddy, you see his chest dent in. I know. I love it. It's, again, it's so tactile and real. But if it did bump in there, when he jumps on the grenade, I feel like it might have exploded. 
<laughs> he would have had a hole. He would definitely have had a hole. And how many times does Toto almost get stepped on in this movie? Oh, very close to getting stepped on. And as a matter of fact, I believe one Toto was killed. Uh, oh, he was hurt. He, he was hurt. Okay. stepped on. Okay. We, no paw. Totos were killed in the no making of this movie. <laughs> no Terry. No Terry, the female Karen Terry. Okay, this is an embarrassing thing. I have read Terry's autobiography. Wait, the dogs? Yeah, the dogs. It's called I Toto. I got really into <laughs> stage dogs for right. a little bit because I was researching this movie dog named Jumpy, who's the greatest of all dogs. I'm very excited. What did you find out about Benji, by the way? I need to talk about that off air. Oh, man. there's Benji's been hurt a couple times. Benji was in a movie called Benji at Marineland where they put him in a scuba suit. That could not have been good for a dog. Anyway, go ahead. But how excited to be a dog going where no dog has gone before. <laughs> like, Laika is one of my heroes on the planet. Who's Laika? Laika, the dog who was the first Russian dog sent up into oh, space. Oh, okay. I mean, Laika didn't come back, but Laika, <laughs> I mean, if we're going to do like a tiny dog detour, which I'm all about, like Laika was a street dog they found on the streets of Moscow and they picked her up wow. because she was a female and she did better than any of the other street dogs in the test. They wanted like a real scrapper of yeah, a yeah. dog. Wow. Laika only ever went from street to laboratory. I love it. And then the week before Laika was shot up into space, one of the main engineers took her home and let her play with his kids for the weekend. Uh-huh. And then he blasted her off into space, and then she died, like, the week after. And she, to me, is one of the most beautiful characters in the 20th century. I love that story. It's so sad. It's so sad. A moment of pure happiness, and then off to yeah. their death. But Terry, I Toto, pretty good book. Her trainer, Carl Spitz, was, like, a very big deal in the dog training world. Yeah. Because he had a philosophy about how you train dogs, which wasn't, like— make them these perfect little robotic dogs. Because when you watch Toto in this movie, Toto's fascinating. Toto's like, oh, the witch is falling. That's cool. I'm over here looking at this other yeah. thing. Like Toto's always just acting. Toto is a full character. Yeah. Yeah. Toto's, Toto's got a personality. Also about this movie that I think is so interesting too. And we talked about this a little bit in Ben-Hur. Things were not done probably too safely in any of these movies. And I think that there is like, that makes me almost enjoy it more. Like there's are these elements of, of course, you know, uh, the Tin Man, uh, the original Tin Man was Buddy uh, Epson. Buddy who went on to be on uh, uh, Beverly Hills, Beverly well, Hillbilly. Yes. And he basically got sick because the paint they used for the Tin Man made him sick. When they were lying down in the poppy fields, that was real asbestos, like the carcinogen uh, kind. Like that was going on there. Like, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about bad behavior from uh, the, the people who played the munchkins. Um, there's rumor that this is where uh, Judy Garland started drinking on this movie. Like there is, like, there, there was stuff going on here and this movie that is poor wicked, Witch was set on fire and then she decided not to do any more fire broom stunts. And then her stunt double got set on fire. Oh my God. She was in the hospital for weeks. I think six weeks. The original, that kindly lady we just heard. And it's, it's her green paint that they used on her skin wouldn't wash off. She washed it off, but then she oh, was right. vaguely green for months. And also talking about like the danger of this movie, those monkeys who I also assume probably are just reused munchkins, right? Like they're just like, all right, today you're in the monkey costume. They're flying in on wires and they're picking up dogs. That seemed, I had anxiety watching it, but it also made me more connected to it. There's so many of those moments. They're painting horses with like, apparently it was um, jello, like the the paste from jello powder. That's so macabre. They're painting horses with their own dead horse feet. (laughs) <laughs> and the horses were busy licking it off each other. So they're eating dead horse. This movie, what did they do? <laughs> it's like Cannibal Holocaust, 1939. <laughs> the movie, um, it seems simple. Like if you were like to shoot this now, you could probably 
shoot it pretty quickly, but it took a long time to make this movie. Like this movie was a giant undertaking. And I was trying to figure out why, because they're pretty much oftentimes just on one set and they do a bunch of stuff and then they go to the next set. Yeah, it was kind of a Marvel movie thinking about how it was at the time. You have these actors, they're in these costumes where they can't eat or drink anything. They're like, I think the cowardly lion, because he has those jowls on, had to eat all his meals through a straw. And because the tin man could kind of eat easier, he would eat good food in front of the lion just to fuck with him at lunch break to be like, ha ha. And his costume is 90 pounds. So they're showing up every day in all these ridiculous special effects. And I don't think they're taking the movie as seriously as we take it now. They're just like, we're doing this kid's movie. This costume is garbage. I heard the lion smelled awful because he was sweaty inside that outfit every day. And they couldn't even eat with the other people in the film because their costumes frightened the other diners in the cafeteria at MGM. So they were like exiled. I was thinking about Michael Chiklis when he was doing uh, Fantastic Four. He was in a crazy costume as The Thing. And He could never get out of it, and he was, like, underneath all this makeup. So people would stop paying attention to him as a human being. Like, he was just treated like a prop. And he had to go to therapy to get over this, like, PTSD of being in that costume. And and that's what you don't realize. Like, these costumes are so cumbersome. No one wants to take you out of them. And you are just trapped. Um, Even at the same time, I would almost rather be the non-poisonous thin man than to have to be... Poor Judy Garland here, who the studio always thought was too ugly, honestly, when she was a kid. Yeah, they only liked her in movies because of her voice. But Louis B. Mayer called Judy Garland his, quote, little hunchback. I mean, this is a girl who was in the studio for two years at this point. She's 15 when she starts making this film. She's been with them forever. They've been shoving her in corsets. They've been getting her teeth fixed. They're going to make her get a nose job. And by the way, she's beautiful, right? I mean, mean, she seems beautiful to me. She's beautiful. And yet there's that scene where she goes to the Emerald City and she gets this makeover. And that scene kind of kills me because that's what the studio was doing to her all the time. Like, there's booklets of her doing pages and pages and pages and pages of, like, Different dresses, different hairstyles, different makeups to be Dorothy with people being like, oh, she looks a little fat here. And then even after that, even in some of the positive Wizard of Oz reviews, I found one where a guy calls her well-fed, just like the well-fed Judy Garland. Holy shit. That's so crazy to me. You know, I do feel like, though, this is a time where the studios have a lot of power and and maybe they fell into a lot of these movies by accident because there was a, a rumor at one point, not even a rumor, it was a true thing. The studio wanted to cut Somewhere Over the Rainbow from the movie. Like It slows the movie down. And you would argue that's probably the most iconic thing that you remember from the film. That song is so associated with this movie, you know, and they didn't know it was working and they stumble into it. Now they're geniuses because they made a movie that's on the AFI uh, top 100 list. Okay. So in 1997, Wizard of Oz was number six on the list. And now on this list, it's moved down to number 10. So that means the Wizard of Oz is dropping. That seems strange that it's dropping. Yeah. Because to me, watching this, I mean, we're so close into the starting this series, but Wizard of Oz and Citizen Kane just seem very tied almost to me. I mean, Citizen Kane 
gets the edge of yes. right now. I think there's an argument made that I think more people have seen Wizard of Oz than Citizen Kane. I think that's true. I think the filmmaking here is pretty impressive. I was really impressed with the direction of it because you know that they're on sound stages and the way they make Munchkinland look, it is, I mean, you know, they're, they're on a stage, but they're moving that camera around a lot. You're seeing a lot. It look, you know, it's, it's sh- so big that even though you see that the entire backdrop is just painted always, it's yeah. just this beautiful mountain range that's painted no matter where they are. You don't mind. Like I, it still yeah. seems giant to me. Well, and it's also like it, 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 there's something about it that feels again, like the plastic flowers. It feels all, uh, very thought out. It's like they weren't trying to mix it. They just went full bore into Candyland, which I'm just realizing right now. Candyland is Wizard of Oz, right? To a certain degree. Oh, dude. Yeah, there's swamps and bogs. I love Candyland. I love Candyland. I've been playing a lot of it lately. Are you serious? Yeah, literally. Yeah, people will not play Candyland with me because they say there's no strategy, but it's the lack of strategy that I appreciate because it makes it more about the fun of gameplay. I because agree. Because you can't take winning and losing personally. It's all just And sometimes karma. it can be really far behind and then you'll move up. So this is interesting. This is Wizard of Oz, number 10 on our list. Um, I feel like... Yes, 100% deserves to be in the top 10. And right now, feeling like it should be higher. I am with you. I am totally with you. And there's, I wonder if at the end of this, we should rank all of them ourselves, or will that just be murder? Or or, or maybe you make your own list. Maybe there's a bunch of lists. Maybe by the time we're done with this podcast, there will be a hundred lists of the hundred best films. <laughs> um, all right, so now we're moving down our list a little bit. Uh, for our next episode. 90. 90. 90. Ooh, now this is a movie that I've never seen. It's called Swing Time. Have you ever seen it? I've never seen it either. This is going to be brand new to me. It's a Fred Astaire musical, right? Yes, and we are staying in this era for the most part. It's a 1936 film, so it it predates Wizard of Oz. Well, then this is a perfect moment for another call to action. Ooh, call to action. Wait, so are you saying that we should maybe have our listeners right now give us a call and... Let them tell us what they think it's about. Why, yes, Paul, I am. <laughs> Should we give them a hint? Should we say that it's about, say, dancing? Ooh. Wow. Well, so if you can build out the plot of Swing Time from there, give us your best guess. And our number is 747-666-5824. That's 747 like a plane, 666 like the devil, and 5824 for reasons we have yet to come up with. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're liking this podcast, please recommend it to your friends. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, it just helps get the word out. And a big thank you to Vox, who wrote a really nice review of the show. We really appreciate that. And just if you guys are paying attention with us right now, I will tell you this much. So far, we have spent uh, 455 minutes of our lives watching these movies. Uh, that, that's this, the combined runtime of Citizen Kane, Ben-Hur, and Wizard of Oz. So please Thanks join ben us. Thanks, for all of that. Oh, my God. As like we, half of that. We're breaking through eight hours right now of the best movies of all time. So we will see you next week for Swing Time. This is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. (laughs) 
Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, Jazos. (laughs) Ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.